Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are recording this episode on one side of November 1st, and I trust that we will somehow get to the other side of November 1st, but I I can't say with complete confidence that that's going to happen. But if you are hearing this, then it has happened and I'm still alive. And and that's great. Uh, Very glad to hear it. Um, For those of you who are seniors out there, keep on it. Uh, We know that you've got a lot of work that you are currently working through. Uh, Many of you might already be done. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, And we wish you all the best as you continue to execute every aspect of your applications. Uh, We've got a really awesome show today. A couple of different guests that are joining us from colleges, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. And then we're also going to turn to our finance corner to have a little conversation about emergency funds. But before that, we want to start out on the West Coast, I put the West Coast first. That's you know an editorial decision on my part as a West Coaster myself. Uh, joining us for our first segment today um, is David Gervin, and David is the Associate Director of Admission at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. Hey, David, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. And I hear West Coast, Best Coast. As a former East Coaster, it pains me to say that, but when it's 80 degrees in February, yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, he um, he's exactly right, folks. Uh, and I'm sorry to to break the news to all of you who are not on the West Coast, but it, but it is the best the best side of the country, um, inarguably. Uh, so, David, I wanted to before we start talking a little bit about Pitzer, and I want to hear a little bit from you. Especially, we'll unpack some aspects of the essay supplement, and uh, I think that'll be interesting for folks whether they're interested in Pitzer or if they're also writing essays for other schools as well. But I just wonder if you could give us a little peek into what's happening right now for admission officers. We kind of know what students are going through and what counselors are going through. But what are you up to at this time on the calendar? What are you thinking about uh, as we approach November 1st? Yeah, of course. So I think at this time, we are very much in the process of wrapping up our travel and recruitment season. Uh, So I finished my last trip last week. Uh, So when it comes to just meeting with the students within our territories, something that is arguably probably my favorite part of the job, because it really gets a sense of just meeting the students in the areas, it makes it much more more in-depth to understand the context of a student when I'm reading their application. So we are ramping up for application reading season. Uh, luckily for us, our ED deadline is November 15. So oh, nice. we're not as a stress right now, knowing that students might be thinking about that as well. Um, but we're very much kind of similarly ramping down from travel and leading into the next three months of nonstop application reading. And it's fun as an admission officer, you get to sort of, you get to be this big extrovert, you're doing all of this presentation energy and connecting with people. And then you go into your reading cave and you spend three months reading applications and not speaking to any other human. So it's not quite like that, but um, it's it's very interesting to myself a little bit to keep the days going. I'm still an extrovert, but yeah, it's a different brain switch for sure. Definitely. So, uh, and where, where do you recruit? What, what territories are you responsible for at Pitzer? Yeah. So I'm originally from the Boston area. So it's nice that I actually recruit in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So it's nice to get my new England and 
wear the sweatshirts I never touched living in Los Angeles since then. Um, but my main travel territory is Washington State. So we get a lot of students cool. um, after California. It's our second most popular state. So I spent a lot of time in the Seattle region. Um, but additionally, internationally, I have Canada and uh, most of Asia as well. Uh, so we didn't recruit internationally this year, but hopefully post-pandemic, we're planning on it next fall uh, to make sure that that works. Um, so I have some both domestic and international territories. That's fabulous. I never read applications from the East Coast, but I did. I was a second reader for Washington for a while, and I, I also read all of Asia for a couple of years. So we, we probably will have read from the same schools. You know, you see a lot of those same institutions kind of popping up again and again within the applicant pool. And you came to Pitzer by way of Northeastern University uh, previously. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, right after I graduated, so I went to Stonehill College in Easton, Mass. It's about uh, 45 minutes south of Boston. Was a tour guide, orientation leader, very much. <laughs> of course, uh, yep. I, I've just reached my 10 years. Uh, there's a common saying of you're either in college admissions for three or 30, and I'm already a third there. So I guess I'm headed towards 30 at this point. That's great. Um, but after graduating from Stonehill, I worked at Brandeis University for three years and then switched over to Northeastern where I was there for four years. And I also got my master's in higher ed administration while I was working there too. Okay. So Northeastern and uh, Pitts are pretty different institutions. Yes. Um, you know, I think in some respects, Northeastern, you know, it belongs to the city of Boston. And so there are many, many college students there. I think it was one out of every four people in the Boston area during the school year is a, is a college student. But Pittsburgh is quite different in that you are a part of this consortium where there are many, many college students um, in terms of a percentage of the total population that are part of these five campuses. You've got Claremont McKenna and Harvey Mudd, Pomona, Scripps, which is a women's college, and then Pittsburgh. Can you just talk a little bit about how life is different uh, when you are a part of a consortium and what kind of benefit that brings to students who are at Pitzer? Yeah, of course. So it really drew me to working at Pitzer. And I wasn't as familiar with it when I was working at Northeastern because I'm from New England, so I didn't know as many schools out on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, but I was definitely at a point in my career where I went to a liberal arts institution. I very much wanted to go back to that. Uh, I loved my time at Northeastern, but it is definitely a city and large school in many different yeah. ways. Um, I think when I started there, it had 52,000 applications. And when I left, it was over 75,000. And I think now they're at over 90,000 applications a year. So <laughs> wow. it is certainly a nice benefit to be at a smaller school where really that holistic approach is so much more in tune with the admissions process. Um, like, for example, I love working at a test-free school, and we don't even look at SAT or ACT whatsoever. And it's very mission-driven, and I think that is something that is very specific to Pitzer as well, um, especially being a part of the consortium, because I think it's unique. There are certainly a few other college consortiums in the U.S., um, but to have all five within one square mile is also yeah. pretty unique. So it doesn't feel like that super small campus in the middle of nowhere where um, you might know everyone by your sophomore year. Not that there's anything wrong with those schools. It's kind of all about fit. And I think the type of students looking for a school like Pitzer, they want that small of arts. They want that tight-knit community, but then they want the resources of a medium-sized school, which they'll find in the consortium at the same time. Um, so a, qu a question I've always kind of wondered with respect to these consortium schools, and Pomona was, was actually my top choice when I was applying to college. 
Um, a long I won't take that personally. Yeah, please don't. Um, <laughs> I've changed since then. Uh, but, you know, I was kind of curious and I've always wondered whether you get students at Pitzer who are also applying to other of the consortium schools or if you see a lot of cross apps or if it's the students kind of say it's Pitzer or nothing for me. I'm not going to go down there and be a student or Claremont McKenna. It's going to be Pitzer. Um, how do you see that kind of lining up for students that are interested in in your schools in particular? Yeah, of course. And I think it's a little bit of both. We certainly, I think Pitzer, uh, and I could talk about this more. So as uh, our five core values really shows our mission-driven aspects of who we are as an institution. So uh, those are intercultural understanding, interdisciplinary learning, environmental sustainability, student engagement, and social responsibility. So we're very much the social justice school of the five in many ways. So when it comes to those five core values, it very much is the ethos of where is a community. So many students, I think, find that in many ways. Um, but also we see many students that uh, are interested in multiple of the uh, Claremont schools because there is that consortium aspects where they have the same sh same shared resources. Um, especially we uh, share our athletics with Pomona. So that's another factor of where some students might be looking at both of us in particular. Um, but I always like to say when I'm talking with students, we never know if students are applying to any of their schools. We might do shared events um, and shared resources and kind of those aspects, but it is five separate admissions processes. Um, so we don't share data across the schools, especially as that's something that's so important in the college admission process too. Um, but I always like to say with the good caveat, if a student's applying to all five, they might be having an identity crisis um, <laughs> because there is certainly unique aspects academically as well as socially. Um, so there's definitely some overlap, um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's shared resources. So once a student is within the consortium, they have access to that all. Yeah, and I, I feel like if I were to sit down and have a conversation with someone randomly chosen from among those five colleges, I could probably deduce within a half an hour to an hour which of those colleges they belong to. I think there is enough of a distinction between those places. There are some overlaps, but then you also see that students are kind of honed in some respects by the community that they belong to. And so in many ways, you're selecting for the values that you're hoping to cultivate in yourself, not exactly. just the place where you feel like you're going to be the best fit based on who you are now. And I wanted to ask you a question because you mentioned the five core values, and that's a big preamble to the essay question that we are going to talk mm -hmm. about today. So, so Pitzer has two supplemental essay questions, um, one that it, you can write up to 650 words on, and it has this preamble about those five core values. And I often tell students that part of the reason that colleges will, will include this information is, is so students are more aware of what they're getting out of Pitzer. It's not just we want you to answer this question. It's also we want you to know a little bit of something about us. Is that part of the motivation of why this question is asked in this way as an educational um, piece of the application? Or is it just about what the students have in terms of their response? So it's both. Um, I think that and I think some of the distinctions of the Claremont schools uh each of the five sort of represents the time that they were founded, and Pitzer very much comes through those social justice values. Uh, we were founded in the 1960s, so I think when it comes to the height of the civil rights movement, hippie culture, uh, those kind of aspects kind of are who we are as an ethos, as I mentioned from the get-go. But in the admissions process, we're also looking for community members. So it's yeah. not just about whether a student is academically successful in the application process. We very much are looking at things like the extracurriculars, like the essays and recommendations, and especially the supplements, because then it's it tells us whether a student is the, ultimately that right fit for a school. Um, and also it is a great way for the students to see 
as they're applying, do they identify with one of those five core values? We're not saying students have to identify with all five. Um, certainly there are students that do, but if they're not identifying with any of the five, then we probably might not be the right fit for them as an institution. Um, I know I talk to students all the time. I was even talking with my cousin who's applying to schools right now and looking at their essays. And it can be incredibly stressful for all these other additional supplements and essays. But I would also say it's my favorite part of the application because it really tells yeah. new information for us as an institution that we wouldn't otherwise know. We get to see a little bit of their personality, what they're passionate about, what core value does excite them, what type of yeah. community member would they be when they come to a campus like Pitzer. Um, so it's a very important to the process. Um, because we know the Common App essay is something that they're sending to many different schools. That's right. It's only right. a snapshot of who they are. And also, I think at this point in my career, I've read over 10,000 applications. So like, it's there's only so much life experience a 17-year-old can have in their Common App essay that I might talk about. But when it comes to the supplement, it it's something different. It's some it's a new layer to who they are in the admissions process. Um, so it's I would probably say it's myself and my other colleagues' favorite part of our application at Pittsburgh. It's a, it's a great reminder. And I think a, a lot of students see those supplements as being literally supplemental to the application. But when we think from the perspective of the institution reviewing them, especially when you have a supplement that is 650 words and has such a connection to the core mission of the institution, it can sometimes be the more important essay uh, mm-hmm. than the personal statement. I mean, everything goes together and there's not a, a way that you weight those differently kind of scientifically, but there is an aspect in which you're, you love Pitzer and it's your baby and, and you want you, you know, a student to connect with it in a particular kind of way. Exactly. And, and I think that it's really exciting because it showcases how they are connecting with it. And on the flip side, it also sees whether a student might not like, I, I think that sometimes in supplemental essays, college admissions officers can tell whether they feel like the information was pulled from the website or That's they right. feel like a student might be phoning it in. And, and it's not something we ever want to see, but it, it does come across sometimes. So when you see that spark and that fit for a student, often the supplement's the one where I see it the most. Yeah, I, I would agree uh, as well, just based on my experience reading applications. And I want to I call out the particular two questions that are attached. So, you know, for those yes. of you who are looking online or maybe you're checking on your own Common App and, you know, they introduce the core values, the five core values of Pitzer. And then there are two questions that you can respond to one or the other. And so the first is reflecting on your involvement throughout high school within the community. How have you engaged with one of Pitzer's core values? Pretty straightforward, I think. The second question is describe what you are looking for from your college experience and why Pitzer would be a good fit for you. And I want to ask you, David, my instinct is that with that second question, this is not just a conventional why this college essay, but students really do need to bring those core values into some aspect of their response, given the preamble that has been attached to that. Yes. So within the two prompts, um, and we used to have a third prompt, but we kind of shifted to the two specific prompts because we really do want students to hone in on our core values because that's who we are as an institution. Um, so seeing that kind of balance of what excites them and their passions and how does it relate to one of those five core values. So I think those best supplements usually uh, are showcasing what excites them and their passions and then how does it relate to one of those core values in many different ways. Um, I've also seen some essays where students try to talk about all five and that's not always the best benefit because then it feels a little bit of a bullet point essay. So it's really, uh, I think when it comes to showcasing that prompt, it's to show them that like, this is who we are as an institution. Who are you? How do you relate to us? What would you type of what type of student would you be on our campus? Um, yeah. So it's very important for them, specifically to Pitzer, because we are so mission driven to relate to at least one of those core values. 
I, I often, you know, tell students that the the why this college essay is a kind of Venn diagram where you've got the college and you've got yourself and you want your essay to live at the overlap of those two things. And I think that's especially true when we're talking about these core values. So which of those values creates the greatest overlap for the experiences you've had in your life? And then how can you expand on those with, with storytelling? I also want to get to the second. You said there is a new optional hundred word essay that applicants are able yes. to review this year. This is this is a truly optional essay for students. Completely optional. And I know sometimes in college admissions, the word optional can can sometimes have a wink wink. <laughs> it's scary. Not really optional. Yeah. Uh, but for us, it's completely new um, that we added this year. It was something that came into conversations from our staff to really kind of get more personality and find new information for them. So um, at Pitzer specifically, we have a lot of public art that relates to activism and social justice. Um, So it's a great way to kind of see another snippet of something that they're probably not getting asked at other institutions within their supplemental essays. Um, And specifically, we want this one to be optional because we want it to be fun, different, not stressful by any means. Gotcha. So this is a great, I love this little quote uh, or this, this prompt. I think it's really interesting because there's so much that can be done with it. It's a, it's only a hundred words maximum. It says two of our favorite murals on campus have quotes that read quote, be your own weird and quote, you are of this place. It is changing you. I love that too, because it's just like, there's like marketing in there to, as well. It's like, by the way, we do this here and this is who we are, but I love that. The question is if you could add an inspirational quote or art piece to our campus, what would it be and why? Very open-ended. Um, I'm just quickly from you. I, you know, I think with questions like this, sometimes students have this thought of like the initial thing that jumps into their head could also be something that a lot of people are giving as an answer. How risky should students be with respect to this prompt? To what extent should they really explore the depths of their creativity, or are they looking for a safer answer? This is, I mean, I know it's open-ended and it's optional, but any advice you'd give to students that are like, how can I, how should I approach this thing? Yeah, I think that when that comes, when I get asked that question sometimes from students, like similar topics might come across, but it's more about like, are they genuinely passionate about what they're saying? And that can usually come across. So I think, like, I would love to see students' personalities, whether it is more risky or conventional, or I don't know if the word safe, because it's a, it's only 100 words. So it is a, a kind of a shorter snippet of their personality, um, but specifically at a school that really is looking for that activist mindset. Like, how does that come across? Is it something super serious or something more specific and personal to them? Perfect. I love that answer. I love these these prompts together, and and I think it's I, I just love you know reading essay reading applications with those supplemental essays. And so, David, I want to thank you for coming and talking us through Pitzer. I know we could talk much more about the consortium and Pitzer College and all of its goals and values, but but I appreciate the little window that you gave us today. Yes, of course. I mean, I could talk about supplemental essays for hours and hours. <laughs> I can too. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's part of the job. Um, when we come back, we are going to take a trip all the way out to the East Coast and talk a little bit about Bates College. And so we hope that you'll stick around and join us for that conversation. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We just had a wonderful discussion uh, with David Gervin, who is a uh, an admission officer out with Pitzer College. And we are literally going from one corner of the United States all the way up to the other corner, to the northeastern corner, and Bates College, which is in Lewiston, Maine. And joining me to discuss Bates College is a uh, senior director of admission uh, at Bates College or a senior associate dean of admission. Uh, we've got Scott Alexander here today. Hi, Scott. How are you? Good, Ian. Thanks for having me today. Very delighted to have you here um, and to learn a little bit more about Bates. Um, my initial introduction to Bates was I, I traveled with an alumnus of Bates who was a Skidmore admission rep through Asia. He loved Bates, I think, a little bit more than Skidmore. Uh, <laughs> and, and he didn't talk about that in his presentations, but off the air, he was like, yeah, I love Bates. Um, and so I wonder if you could just introduce a little bit about the college for those who uh, might be unfamiliar um, and kind of what its peers are, especially within Maine and, and New England. Sure. So a lot of students, uh, families may hear about the Bowdoin-Bates-Colby triad. And Maine is so fortunate to have three of the best liberal arts colleges in the country in the state of Maine. Um, And yet we get grouped all together, yet we're all so different from each other. So Bates was founded at a time period when access to education was pretty limited. Mm -hmm. So I like to frame it around Bates's founders being disruptors of higher education. So they wanted to educate women and um, formerly enslaved folks and international students, which is pretty radical for the time. Think about it, we've been educating women for about 100 years before most of our competitors. So really like radical progressive history. And I think you see that play out throughout the college's tenure from um, Benjamin Mays, who was a leader of the civil rights movement, was spiritual mentor for Martin Luther King Jr. And we just celebrated a few days ago the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, which was written by Bates graduate Ed Muskie when he was a senator from the state of Maine. So a lot of kind of roles and um, big social movements, and we're proud to say that we have reached carbon neutrality. Um, So we did that in 2016, and now we are going to be climate positive by 2030. So we have a very aggressive sustainability plan at Bates. That's really cool. Uh, when was Bates founded exactly? Uh, what yeah, year? So 1855. So it doesn't old college make us the oldest, but makes us amongst the right the original institutions. Um, and we're part of the NESCAC, which is a fancy acronym. Um, it stands sure for New England Small College Athletic Conference, which is a little bit of a misnomer because not all 11 schools in the NESCAC are in New England, and then not. All of them are small colleges either. So, um, but that is our athletic association. 
I want to unpack that a little bit more, but but first, because I just want to take this opportunity, and I'm not always going to contrast and compare Bates and Pitzer, but just because of this particular show, yeah. it's very interesting to hear you talk about things like social justice and sustainability, which are big aspects of what Pitzer defines itself by as well. But I'm noting that there's a at least a hundred years difference between when Pitzer was founded in the 60s and when Bates was founded in the 1850s. To what extent does that tradition and history influence the everyday life of students on the Bates campus today? Is there a real notable experiential difference in belonging to a school that has such a lengthy history? Right. No, I 100% think there is. So one way we've never had Greek life, which I know is how Hollywood mm-hmm. likes to depict the uh, American college experience. Sure. That is not the Bates College experience. So that's not how we framed um, how students socialize and organize on campus. So we have a variety of housing options, but all of them are mixed by classes and mixed by gender identity. Um, mm-hmm. And so students get to choose throughout their time where they want to cohabitate. I think another big choice, um, this is a pride point for Bates, is that we have one dining hall on campus. Now, mm-hmm. I've worked at other institutions that have multiple dining halls, and you start seeing the student population self-segregate. So at Bates, we want to have our students cross paths as many times a day as we can, and um, at Bates, we have unlimited swipes, so they can go in the dining hall 12, 13 times a day if they want. And they get to see each other and sit down over meals. And it, it does help when you have good food. We just received a ranking today of being in the top 10 for quality of food in the country. So that always helps. Um, and so I think you see that play out too. Yeah. Um, also how we celebrate certain days like Martin Luther King Jr. Day because of that connection with Benjamin Mays. We do cancel class every MLK day and students organize an entire day looking at diversity broadly defined, specifically lately looking at um, racial inequity and injustice in the United States. And one of the traditions at Bates is that um, Benjamin Mays was the president of Morehouse College. So the Morehouse College mm-hmm. debate team actually comes to Bates every MLK day and debates are debate team at Bates, which that's great. Pretty good debate team. So it's a nice tradition and the community shows up for, for that conversation. It's, it's great to see those corn, that kind of like intersection between the values on which the college was founded and how those show up uh, every day. You know, that I think the idea of probably wanting to educate those who typically don't have access to education means more integrated discussions in a dining hall. And so it's cool how that extends from the 1850s all the way up to the, the 2020s. Um, it's also really interesting to see that school spirit takes on a lot of different kinds of forms. A lot of people think school spirit is just found in cheering for the football team or the basketball team, you know, painting your face and going to the games. And there are these other aspects of school spirit that can show up in other kinds of meaningful ways. But of course, at Bates, you do have varsity athletics, and that is a part of, you know, being a part of the the NESCAC. How does varsity athletics show up for a small college like Bates? And, you know, how much is it a part of every student's experience there versus those who are just athletes? Sure. So about 80% of students do some type of athletic activity. Wow. 80%. 80%. So it's pretty significant. So 40% of students are on a varsity sport. Um, Hmm. I think you gone are the days where students actually may do like lacrosse, soccer, football, right? Um, Often we have students who 
have excelled in a particular sport. Maybe the runners do run all three seasons, um, cross country, indoor, outdoor, but you don't really see students um, doing a sport more than one season nowadays. Um, And being part of the NESCAC, each school agrees to field very competitive teams. So this is like the Ivy League, the most competitive division three league in the country. And so um, it's important to us that athletics plays a role in the admissions process, but it's proportional to the overall academic mission of each institution. Um, And this is a pretty eclectic array of schools. So you have Amherst College, Williams College, Bowdoin College, Bates, Colby College, um, Tufts University, Trinity College, Middlebury College, Connecticut College, and Hamilton College. I think I got all of them. Um, And even the mascots are even more random. So you have everything from a bobcat, which is Bates, which seems kind of normal, to uh, a mammoth, a mule, a camel, an eef, which is a purple cow, Alex, which is uh, Hamilton's recently new (laughs) mascot, which is a continental after Alexander Hamilton, a panther, uh, a bantham, which is a chicken or a duck, a bobcat, as I said, baits a polar bear, and I think Jumbo the elephant, I think I got Jumbo. Yeah, that's Tufts, right? Now, Tufts is a lot larger in terms of the student (laughs) population than Bates. And uh, it seems like if you're competing with an institution that has that kind of draw in terms of the student population, it might be somewhat unfair on the playing field. How does that all kind of play out in terms of the annual standings of different athletics in the NESCAC? Yeah, yeah. Tufts is kind of the outlier in terms of size. You know, mm-hmm. Hamilton's the outlier in terms of geography, not being in New England. So, um, you know, I think the the NESCAC would probably pause if Tufts was winning every single sport and winning every national title, but they're not. So, um, and Tufts does prioritize academics um, in addition to athletics. So they share the same values as the rest of us. Interesting. So you've got lots of students who are competing in athletics. You've got, I presume, big rivalries. Is it fair to say that Colby and Bowden are probably the biggest rivalries for a base? Sure, sure. But it does depend on each sport. So okay. for instance, our women's rowing team, um, they, as of, except for this past year, they were five-time national champions in rowing. So um, their rivalry is WPI and Williams. So I see. Um, it does depend on each sport, but you know, the, the football team, it's always, you know, the, the CBB um, and competing um, for football, at least. That's a lot of fun. So I can see how athletes would be involved in this, but division three, you're not going to find typically those, those events that are televised. You might get some press around the national championship competitions. It certainly is going to be uh, you know, intercollegiately, there's a lot of bragging rights that are on the line. What is the role for spectators and for just your everyday Bates student in terms of engaging with athletics? Why choose to be a part of a NESCAC school if I'm not a big athlete? Right. Well, one thing I always point out is just the role of sports culture in the United States, right? When I'm advising, I work mostly with international students, right? I'm, I have to clue them in that sports plays a bigger role in the U.S. college experience. And you might find in other countries like Canada, the United Kingdom, yeah. Australia. So that's just part of the narrative as Americans that we've constructed about what the U.S. college experience should be like. Um, and so students, um, it's a way for us to create community, right? They they gather, they cheer on their friends. Um, 
you know, there are certain sports that just bring out larger crowds than others, you know, basketball, football, soccer, right? Those are going to be bigger crowds, but it's just a way to connect with each other. And for Bates, it's also about, you know, the holistic approach we take to um, educating students. So it's not just the mind, but it's the body and the spirit um, at the same time. So um, all of that is interconnected. And we're really proud of our scholar athletes. You know, they're, they're just not performing on the athletic fields or in the courts right there, yeah. uh, competing in the classroom as well. That's no, a great reminder. I was actually at an alumni event uh, this weekend for for Reed, which is where I went to school, Reed College. And we don't have any varsity sports. We do have a PE requirement. So you have to take six <laughs> quarters of PE to graduate from Reed College, despite not having varsity sports. But our dean of students was talking about, you know, we're not just brains on sticks here. Like we really need to make sure that there is uh, wellness with respect to the body that goes with the mind. And I think that can be harder at a place like Reed where sports are almost actively discouraged, uh, but could potentially be an easier thing to find at a, at a Bates that has you know, a more significant president presence uh, for athletics. So it's a great reminder as you're looking at schools, you're not just in the classroom all the time. You know, you've got so much other programming that you are a part of as you join these communities and thinking about what you're going to be doing between classes and on the weekends is almost as important as thinking about what your major is going to be and how you're going to engage in the classroom. Um, so that's a great reminder, I think, uh, I asked David in our session, um, I want to ask you as well, you know, right now students are kind of, you know, tidying up their last essays. They're getting ready to submit for those early deadlines. What's going on for you at Bates? What are, what are, what's your mindset within the admission office? What are the things that you're focused on as these applications are starting to arrive? Yeah. So we are, um, wrapping up travel, right? So uh, we have returned to in-person travel. Um, partially, we're still doing virtual, so a little bit of a hybrid. Um, but we're about to shift gears into another phase of the cycle, which is, you may hear a lot of admissions officers talk about why we enjoy our work. Um, in part, it's cyclical, right? There's different phases of our application cycle, and we're just about to switch from like strong, heavy recruitment to reading applications, um, which is often the favorite time of year for a lot of us. So um, we are just about to go through reader training. So that means all the admission staff, plus um, any um, adjunct folks that we have helping us, which could be retired faculty members who are helping us read applications. Um, we are all about to sit around a virtual space for about a week and just have conversations about um, the institution, where we're headed, um, what type of students we are looking to enroll. Um, so it's a very thoughtful, detailed process as we before we start reading even the first application this year. Now, within applications, you know, many schools have, you know, they'll take the Common App and Bates is one of those. And the Common App has a personal essay and there's an activities list that's included there. It's got some letters of recommendation uh, from teachers, from counselors. Uh, Bates doesn't have an essay supplement, however. Uh, so there is no additional content that students need to create if they are applying to Bates. And the question I have for you is, without that specific uh, piece to sort of connect that student to Bates, what are some of the things that you and your team are looking for? What are you going to be discussing in reader training for how you spot a student that's going to be a good match for the Bates community? Yeah. So first we used to have a supplement question. So when I arrived at Bates about six years ago, hmm. like other institutions, it was why us? So why out of the 4,000 colleges and universities have you decided to apply to this institution? Yeah. And 
after chatting with our campus partners, which is, you know, the Faculty Committee on Admissions, our, our president and the Board of Trustees, we just decided it wasn't adding a lot of value in our mm. process, meaning that, uh, one, it wasn't, it didn't have a predictive value, right? It wasn't judging a student's success, success broadly defined at Bates. Two, it wasn't helping us make a more informed admission decision. And three, um, it was setting up a hurdle for some students, right? Um, I think seniors are very busy people and we're yeah. we just had another barrier for them. Yeah. And so um, for us, it was just a logical thing to do. And we haven't missed it in the past Interesting. five cycles um, because often students are regurgitating what they're finding on the website or maybe in a print piece um, and just telling us that. And it's stuff we already knew about Bates. We really didn't um, need that information to about that particular applicant to make a decision about that candidate. Gotcha. How, where else do you find that the specific fit for Bates and I, maybe I'm putting, you know, ideas in your head about, about that sense of fit, but my presumption is with liberal arts colleges, you are, you are still looking for that. Where are the other components of the application where that fit really tends to show up, um, strongly so that you can make that decision to say, yeah, this is somebody who's going to be a nice, uh, contributor to our community. Well, it's a larger conversation that maybe we can have another day, but fit and match, you know, we've been trying to look at through a racial equity lens. And what mm-hmm. does that mean, right? Is it coded language, right? That yeah. certain types of students um, belong at Bates and other types of students don't. So we've been, we tried to strip those words of our vocabulary. Interesting. Uh, as yeah. we, once again, going back to the social justice piece that, that we talked about about Bates initially, um, we're really trying to look at our process through that lens. Um, and so, there's, there's no one thing we're looking for when we read applications to judge fit. Um, it's just as how we want to construct the community, which is uh, a little bit more interesting for us. And I think it gets to, and obviously this is a larger conversation, but I think it's a really interesting question of, of you know, our institutions kind of selecting students who already would be successful match for their institution, in which case, what value are they adding? Or are these institutions assembling a community and then the educational experience is what creates the value. And so schools can kind of say, Hey, we can educate anyone. That's what we're good at. That's what we're, we're strong with. And so we want to assemble a class that creates this sort of collective value and has a certain kind of feel fit being something that is really secondary or tertiary to that kind of consideration. Yeah. Um, It's a super interesting question that we are constantly wrestling with. And I think about like, rankings, for instance, which mm-hmm. we all know are designed to sell magazines, right? They don't really have yes. value. Um, however, the, the value they're measuring is the input, right? They're not measuring the output of what, how we educate students and how they grow and change during their four years. So we have to figure out kind of that piece as we look at the value of these types of institutions. That's right. Uh, yeah, there is certainly more to discuss there. Uh, Scott, I want to thank you for for coming on this show today, agreeing to be here. I know you've got a busy season ahead of you, but uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ian. It was a great chat. Folks, when we come back, we are going to go over to the college finance quarter and talk a little bit about emergency funds. So stick around. We will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. 
Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. We are capping what has been a great show so far with a turn to some finance conversation. Uh, Joining me from Iowa is my colleague in the college finance office. We've got Michelle Richardson here today. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Hi, Ian. I'm great. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing well. You said we were going to talk a little bit about emergency funds. Now, I'm concerned that this is because you're worried about me losing my job and you want to make sure that I've got a little bit of income uh, stashed away so that when that happens, all is well. But can you just tell me that I'm not, I'm, I'm good, right? Yes, you're good. But I do think it's important for all of us to think about having an emergency fund, regardless okay. of age. Not me in particular, but forever. This is just general advice. So you're not trying to like... I'm not... There's no nuance here. Okay. I don't know anything. Perfect. Good. Okay. So let's talk emergency <laughs> funds. So Uh, What is an emergency fund? Is that kind of like I've got some cash and when I get hungry, I break into that and I take it to Taco Bell and I I feast? Or is it something a little bit more thoughtful and, um, I don't know, intentionally set aside? Yeah, intentionally set aside money is a good uh, way to describe an emergency fund. Um, Emergency funds can be cash. They could be, you know, a checking account or a savings account. You know, I would always encourage looking for a a higher yield savings account. Um, And and it really is a a stash of money should life happen, Mm -hmm. emergencies happen. Um, I found it very interesting. There was an article recently that came out last month that 61% of people do not have an emergency fund. And that number to me seemed very high. And this came from a recent survey from Bankrate. And so, um, and we have a lot of conversations about emergency funds when we are speaking with students about finance, speaking with families about, you know, paying for college and, and saving for college or repaying student loans. You know, you always want to make sure that there's access to funds somewhere in case something happens. Well, maybe for those 61% of people, they just don't plan to have an emergency. And so they don't need to have an emergency fund, right? That's probably bad thinking. Um, What might happen? Like, What could be an emergency that a student in particular might need to have some funding in order Mm -hmm. to have access to? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, for me as an adult, I've got two kids, I've got a mortgage, an emergency fund for me is really about 
if I lose my job, I've got to be able to kind of bridge the gap between finding my next job. But what about a college student who's living in a dorm? What mm-hmm. could be the role of an emergency fund for them? So an emergency fund for them is is not a sale at you know their their favorite store. An emergency fund is things that I experienced when I was on campus was their car broke down. Or I had a student once who had to fly across the country home, you know, quickly for a funeral. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I know more students today may have, you know, a credit card for emergencies. Yeah. And I'm not discounting that either as another option. But starting early and having an emergency fund as, as a student can be really helpful because, if you don't have that extra funds in case of an emergency, um, you're either going to have to put it on a credit card or ask mom and dad for the money. Um, and so there's just a lot of statistics and discipline that comes around having an emergency fund and developing that habit early. Yeah. So you don't get caught off guard because what happens when we get caught off guard financially, we get stressed. We get anxious, you know, and one of the biggest downfalls for a student is they could drop out of college. Right. And so they got dropped out of college. Yeah. You stop working towards that degree. You potentially have some loans that you need to pay. Um, And so the idea of just saving a little bit towards an emergency fund can prevent that from happening. Also, I'm glad you mentioned credit cards because it's sort of a lot of students might say, well, I can just put this on my credit card and then I'll pay it back later but you're looking at really high interest rates. And wouldn't you rather just save that amount in advance than pay the interest on that cost later, right? It's right. proactive, but you know, it's, it's for the best in that regard. Yeah, because in, and the challenge for some college students is they don't, they may not have a lot of credit history yet. Right. They may not have a credit card, So then is it going for a personal loan, which even if they got approved, that would, you know, definitely be a significantly higher um, interest rate. And then the emergency is actually going to cost more overall than just having a a small fund set, set aside. So setting aside a fund, I think it's it's like, oh, great. I would love to have an emergency fund. Give me one, right? But that, it doesn't work that way. So what should people be thinking about as they're putting an emergency fund together? Maybe I'm, I'm just getting started, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's my, I'm a freshman. I still li- listen to getting in a college coach conversation because I just can't quit the lovely hosts and guests that show up every week. So I want to start an emergency fund. What should I do? Sure. So first thing is, is you might want to think about setting up a specific separate bank account, you know, maybe looking at a money market account or an account where you can get a little more interest than just your traditional savings. I personally find it's better to have a separate account for emergencies than just my, you know, kind of traditional spending in, in saving account. Um, but that's me personally. So I think setting aside a separate account, I think looking at, setting a small goal. Half the battle is just starting. And and really, this is the same conversation we have a lot with parents when starting to save for college. You know, you need to start. You need to start small. And I'm not saying that you 
you know, a lot of times in the in the financial world, or if you were to do a search on emergency funds, you're going to see advisors say, well, you should have three to six months of, of salary yeah. put away. Yeah. And that can be daunting for even working adults like us, yeah. uh, you know, so it's more of a matter of starting small, start with $25 a pay period, $50 a pay period or a month if you're a student and get up to $250. And then when you hit that goal, then work it up to maybe $500 and, you know, and up to, you know, a a thousand it's, um, and it's very psychologically rewarding when you hit those little, you know, wins and victories and, and goals. Um, I kind of look at it. It's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So, you know, we have to, I have to be disciplined to go to the gym every day. And, you know, just like I have to be disciplined to have money in an emergency fund. And, and so it's just developing that good habit that will set you up financially, you know, to be financially successful down the road. Yeah. And there, there are little things that you can do for yourself. You can say, all right, I really want a coffee, but maybe I'll take this time. Just take that $5 and throw it over into my savings account and skip the coffee this time or something along those lines where it just feels like a really small, even a choice to say, Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip this. I'm going to put that exact amount of money over my emergency fund. You can see that start to add up and you're right. It is really rewarding to see those things start to stack up. But I'm I'm reminded of this great quote around um, trees, right? So they always say the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. It's because it takes so long for a tree to grow. Yeah, you want a 20-year-old tree, of course. But mm-hmm. if you can't do that because you can't go back in time, then get started, plant a, plant a tree now because in 20 years from now, then you've got it. And the same thing I think is true for these funds is just, of course, it would be better to have started years ago. But if you start now, you'll be happy years from now that you that you got started on that. Right, right. Is there anything to be um, cautious of? And it looks like you may have froze up. Oh, you're back. Okay. It was just a quick freeze that time. Is there anything for students to be cautious of when they're looking for a place to put that emergency fund? Um, you know, maybe an investment that uh, they can't touch the funds for a while, right? Because presumably for an emergency fund, you want to have access to that resource right. in case you need it. Right. So you really, you know, we call that kind of having liquidity so you mm-hmm. can have easy access to it. Um, one nice thing about like looking at a money market account or a high higher yield account is you can get the higher interest than maybe a traditional savings. Um, but there's a limited number of withdrawals you can typically have in those accounts every month. And, you know, an emergency fund account is not a fund that you want to tap into 10 times a month. No. It's it's missing the point there. Yeah. You know, you you want it to sit there, um, continue to grow, hopefully earn a little interest. So your money is working for you and you're not having to pay interest if you were having to put that on a on a credit card or get a a loan to cover the emergency. Um, But I would say looking for those types of accounts and, and, you know, understanding that if maybe you, you want an investment account um, because 
you're a more active maybe investor and and you're more of a risk taker than maybe I am. Um, You know, you have to be under, you have to know and understand that the money that you have in that account could easily go away should the market change. So not a good spot for your emergency fund. No, no, definitely, definitely not. When, you know, you mentioned, uh, we're talking a little bit about students here and students might have different reasons for an emergency fund, but if I'm a parent and I'm, I'm starting to think about sending my kid to college, maybe I'm a parent of a high school freshman, I'm saving some for college, right? Do I also think about the emergency fund as a separate resource? Should I be putting into both buckets? Should I be putting into one bucket or another? How do I think about the emergency fund alongside all these other things that I want to do? Saving up for a car, saving for college tuition, et cetera. Do you have any quick advice to give to families about thinking about that split? Yes, sure. You know, we bring up an emergency fund and kind of try to look at the whole financial picture when we're talking to a family about saving for college. Um, You know, you want to make sure they're putting and saving for their retirement because you can borrow for college, but you can't really borrow for retirement. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I do feel like an emergency fund, especially if you own a home or have kids, um, we all know, I can tell you as a mom and a homeowner, there's always something. An appliance goes out or I have to take the kid to the dentist and, you know, we have to do an emergency procedure or my son broke his leg once in high school and, you know, then there were added medical expenses. So, you know, it, those are the things in life that we, you know, have to be prepared for uh, financially. Right. Right. And for your kid, it might not be a broken leg or a trip to the dentist, but it might be a new roof or it might be a change of tire all of a sudden. And these things do come up. So it's great counsel. I think it's really wise to to think about. Um, And there are implications both for college students and for the families that are supporting them as they start college. Thanks. uh, Thanks for the insight, Michelle. Appreciate it. Yes, you're very welcome. All right, folks, when we come back next week, we will have Beth Heaton hosting once again. We will, as I mentioned, be on the other side of November 1st, and so therefore a little bit more sane on the admission side of things. Uh, We will be talking interview strategies because interviews are top of mind for seniors. And we'll also address what to do if you've got a senior who is just starting this process. Uh, Let's make sure that we enjoy Thanksgiving so maybe we can fire up some quick tips uh, just before the holidays. Uh, Finally, we'll talk about the return on investment of higher education and how that might be different for everyone. So a great topic in there with finance. As always, we're happy to bring our expertise to you. We hope that you're having a lovely start to your fall. Thanks again, Michelle. Uh, And we'll see you all here next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.